Hey everyone, this is Andrew Johnson. And this is Jake Reiner. And you're listening to No Contest, a Noal Studio podcast. A series of conversations with placemakers on the stuff that makes us human and the stuff that humans make. All right. We are speaking today with Michael Salvatore, a Chicago Edgewater native and hospitality creative behind some of Chicago's most innovative coffee shops and bars, including Heritage Bicycles and Coffee, Heritage Outpost, Larry's at the Lawrence House, and his newest ventures, Froth and Bunker. He's been deemed a pioneer in Chicago's maker movement, a member of the Crane's 40 Under 40 class, and has done a handful of creative ventures along the way. To us, Michael's a good friend and partner, and to many, he's the original hipster, as well as the guy who found a way to make bikes and coffee relevant and cool. Michael, it's always good to see your face. The beard is looking strong. Uh, For those who can't see Michael, he is in what appears to be the most well-designed dungeon uh, we've seen. Someone save Uh, me. Michael, welcome. Save me. Yes, thank you for having me. (laughs) I am in my basement. I built this bunker out uh, before COVID, and I was like, oh, I need an office at home. Then my kids took took it over for school, and now I'm slowly kicking them out back to school and I'm going to take it back over, but. Well, it's very, uh, very shabby chic. However they describe it these days. I like to punish myself really is where all this inspiration <laughs> comes from is just self punishment. That's great, man. So Michael, for those who don't know you, obviously Jake and I know you very well. Tell us about yourself. You know, where did you grow up? What is your family like your background? How did you become the OG hipster? OG. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Chicago. I uh, grew up in Edgewater, East Edgewater, kind of near Rogers Park, uh, kind of a different neighborhood than it is now, which is, you know, amazing that it's evolved into something super uh, family friendly and cool. And it's always been that way for me, but it's definitely a different world now. Um, but yeah, I grew up here. My mother's, you know, from Peru. My father is a fifth generation city of Chicago. They met in the Peace Corps in Peru. My dad was in the Peace Corps. And, you know, I like to say that he uh, hit my mother over the head, clubbed her, and brought her back to, to Chicago. Like the caveman he is. No, he's like the gentlest guy. He would never. Um, but she's from a small town in Peru. And, you know, and, and you ask, you know, how I kind of got to where I am and what shaped me. All that shaped me, all my childhood and my family and, and friends. And um, I think a lot of it, a lot of my hospitality um wanting to be in hospitality is from and now that I think about it from my mother and father who were gracious hosts to anybody who came and visited from across the world that we'd have you know every weekend in the summer and winters and we'd have families come visit us and we've had exchange students every year of my life you know I shared the bedrooms with my brothers because you know the kids you know the family would take another bedroom and uh seeing she would take a bedroom so like it's just that type of family. It's always been hosting doors open. They would always have friends over and in a good way. And, you know, we'd always be part of that. And I think a lot of what I bring to the table now is because of that upbringing. It's just open the doors, be a gracious host, invite people in and make friends. Um, and so, you know, I think um, getting back to, to where I started and what, what drives me, um, definitely family, definitely friends, my kids, my wife, um, they all kind of take me to the next level. Yeah. And, and shout out to your wife, Melissa, Jake and I have the unique opportunity to, uh, to have worked with her and she took headshots of us and made us look 
way more handsome than him and I have ever appeared ever. Well, here's here's what I've told people about, you know, why well, first of all, Bowery Lane Bicycle is my first company and any company I've made since then, why it's become uh instant success is because we've been able to fake it. You know, my wife just takes the most fantastic pictures and she's the imagery is outstanding and it puts us, you know, up there with some of the best companies I think in the world. And because I've been able to utilize her talent and skills, uh We've been able to fake it until we make it. People have believed in us because we have a product to believe in and they can see it. Um, so, you know, shout out to her. I think it's just, uh, you know, what we, it's, it's not everything, but it's, it's a lot to begin with, with that kind of foot in the door as far as imagery. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I, I was telling Jake this. I remember very early on when, when I first met you and, and Melissa, she was like kind of the pioneer of like the look of Pinterest. If that makes any sense, like I remember going on Pinterest and typing in like coffees and bikes, and it was always some form of heritage photo I know, that popped weird. up. And, and I'm I'm not giving I'm not going to say I'm going to give you the credit for paving that path, but you're <laughs> damn near close to paving that path. Yeah, right. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, early on at Heritage, um, we had a well, we had a lot of those photographers too, which kind of created that entire network. Instagram started, I think, when or had just gone into this, you know, huge um, evolution right when we opened the doors and it was just being used and, and picked up by a lot of people. And I think that also is where we were able to kind of uh, excel and just take off. So a lot of that is just happenstance. A lot of that is uh, Melissa. Uh, some of that is me, barely any of it, to be honest. Um, so we're good. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, okay. So let's get in that. So so back in 2011, you, you opened Heritage Bicycle General Store at the original Lincoln Park location, which is still there. It certainly was the first of its kind, mashing bikes and coffee together under one roof. Um, and it was and really still is this revolutionary idea in the world of hospitality. First, talk us through the name Heritage. How did you come up with that? What does it mean? What does it represent? Yeah, well, I mean, heritage is, it was, you know, it seems like an easy one. I mean, it's such, I say this all the time, it's a buzzword. Uh, now that brands have it, it's like, oh, you know, our heritage only needs our whatever it is. And, you know, also in that same angle, I think in the past two to three years, it's actually become kind of a conflicted word. Um, and that's kind of where I have a little bit of trouble with it now is people are trying to hold on to this um, weird idea of that, you know, they're proud or, you know, um, I, it, it's a weird thing because heritage also has a bad connotation now, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm white or I'm Anglo and I'm proud, you know, not that you shouldn't be proud, but like, you know, it's, we're superior or something, which is weird. I don't know. It's off topic. But for me, it was because of, of the heritage that of, of bike building in Chicago. It was of the heritage of my fifth generation lineage in Chicago. It was, you know, celebrating where we've come as a family, where I want to go for my family and hopefully, you know, create a legacy going on in decades to come, maybe, hopefully, which is really hard to do, to have, you know, a heritage that we brought uh, starting in 2011 and on. So, you know, for me, it was kind of like a catch-all relatable word to me. I was really into my ancestry. I was really into um, my great uncle, John, who's like this icon for me, like um, um, someone that I looked up to, I had never met him. I mean, he was, I was four when he passed away, but his like 
the ghost of him lives on through me is like he has all this lineage and all this history and all this character that I keep learning about him. And so my discovery of that stuff uh, during that time period I was working on your new company, you know, he was really relevant in my life. So all that plays a part. And, and um, you know, that was, that was just, I woke up in the middle of the night and I, you know, woke most up and was like, Hey, heritage bicycles, this is it. That's, that's the name. Wrote it down. And the next day I bought the URLs and started working on it. And, um, that was, you know, when, when URLs were easier to get back then, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, today I like buy a URL a day. I'm just like, all right, just in case, just in case, like my next project, I'm <laughs> thinking about, yeah, I'm just like, I'm always ahead of the game. I, I mean, I don't know how many URLs I have. I'm just like, just in case. Yeah. And, and Michael, this idea of, of coffee and, and bicycle, how, how did this idea come to be? Why, why bikes and coffee and not strollers and sativa or running and ravioli or Kool-Aid and kebabs or any other combination that you could you could possibly I feel like with? I feel like you just have two names with the same first letter. You just shout out there like <laughs> bikes and coffee first You're done. letter, first of all. Running and ravioli. Come on. Let's let's get a little more creative. You could here. you could have done burgers and bikes, Mike. <laughs> yes, damn it. That was it. Um <laughs> No, so I was, you know, I was, I was in New York. I started a company with my buddies uh, in our co-op there called Barry Lane Bicycles, and we couldn't afford retail space in New York. This is 2008, 2007, 2008 to 2011. Um, we just hit the, the, the street fairs, the festivals. We popped up. I mean, these guys that I partnered with were amazing what they did. They actually introduced me to the idea of, like, they're, they were in fashion. They had showrooms, so they would always go to these trade shows, and um it was it was in a world that I wasn't belong to, but I was slowly getting introduced to. And the idea that you would be there at these festivals, these trade shows, or these street fairs, um, pop up. We'd be the only kind of non food vendors there, but it was just a lot easier to speak to people when they had like a cup of coffee in hand, or when they had food. And you know, after three years of doing this, it was like something just went off in my head. It was like it is so much easier. To, to just like engage with somebody to sell somebody on something when they're in a better mood. And then I thought to myself, you know, not all bike shops are like this, but a lot of bike shops have a really bad reputation. I was, I didn't want to be a bike shop. I didn't want to, you know, have just bikes and have one interaction every two years or, you know, kind of just like a, a customer that only came in when, you know, they needed a bike or needed a tune up once a year. I wanted to have kind of a relationship. And I thought, why not build this thing on, this you know idea this this vehicle of, of consumerism which is an everyday approach to engaging with somebody and coffee was a very i think accessible maybe more accessible than most things idea that putting them together um would probably be my best bet at creating this formula uh, which is bikes and coffee um but you know when when you think about it too it, it's uh it's a very um, accessible, both are accessible all across the world. Uh, you go anywhere in the world, it's, you know, you can ride a bike, you can get a cup of coffee. These are things that are universal. Uh, you know, I think of them as the, as another universal language. Um, you can go anywhere and obviously get these things. And because of that, it's, it's well known. I mean, it's romanticized. It's easy to relate to anywhere you are, anyone who you are, you know, you grew up riding a bike or you're, you know, dad had a cup of coffee or mom had a cup of coffee. And as you grow older, these things are just part of your life. So it's easy to kind of really tell a story behind that. 
on the business side of it, because we're going to Chicago and we have, you know, what, eight months out of the year is cold. Um, and, you know, those 365 riders are, are, you know, maybe 5% of the riding audience, customer base. In fact, 365, I mean, all year round. Um, right. I thought we really had like a small, narrow window to capture a business or have income, revenue. And so having that coffee shop uh, was really important to keep the revenue going, to keep the business open, to keep employees employed, you know, quite frankly. And so that was all kind of part of it. It's it's all these kind of three things that play a part in why, why bikes and coffee work, why that formula makes sense. And, 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 that, and in the same way, like as far as culturally goes, you know, bikes and coffee both have these transitional um, customers who just need a cup of coffee or just need a bike for, a, you know, a ride somewhere. They don't really think about what quality it is. They just know that it's part of their routine or, you know, they don't care about, um, you know, upkeeping or, or where the beans come from. But then on the, on the other spectrum, you have these geeked out folks who are just so engaged in, in the culture, like from every single component of your bicycle to every bean in your cup of coffee. And it's really fun to see. And you can kind of play both parts where I understand that people just don't care about where the coffee is brewed as long as it's good. And I understand people just want to ride a bike and like not worry about, you know, the upkeep or the components. Uh, but at the same time, it's super fun to see people who are know more than you. And that's, that's kind of fun to be a part of as well. So on that on that front, this is something that we've talked about before, but I think it's interesting to our listeners. You you mentioned to us that that you know bikes and and you knew bikes because you you worked in bikes in, in New York and um, you know you have a heritage around around bikes, uh, but coffee was something that was was fairly new. And as you just mentioned, coffee is something where there's just like this group of fanatics and they're so you know they're so obsessed with with the details and the minutia and. Um, Tell us about how you got up to speed on coffee and, and the support that you had and, and how that led to where Heritage is today. Yeah. Well, let me get back to bikes. Um, you said, like, I know bikes. I, you know, knowing, <laughs> knowing what I don't know is probably my biggest um, advantage. I, I know that I'm, I'm limited to my scope in bikes. I, you know, I went into it. I was building bikes in Brooklyn. Um, I was helping, you know, build this company creating bikes and uh, queens, but like there is such a world out there that after getting into it, knowing people around me are so much more knowledgeable and I don't pretend to be in that kind of level. Uh, I don't think I'll ever get to that level mainly because of time at this point, but it's just fantastic to see. I surround myself with really knowledgeable people and in the, in the, in the, you know, the cycling industry, there's so much better people you can reference as, bike people so let's just get it out of the way i you know i, I appreciate it I okay so we'll from. stop referencing you as a as a bike person Mike. <laughs> right 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 no, it's, no you, you know I just, where I to just, look you know where to look yeah, i know where to look i just see it as like i'm like god my eyes are open to like jesus the world of bikes is insane and it keeps growing super cool to watch and as with coffee you know i was doing the bike thing for four or five years with coffee it was i got really lucky i happened to have a relationship or i started a relationship with the folks in some town in new york and they had kind of rejected a lot of proposals to come to chicago at that time it was 2011. um you know people were trying to get them in there for a few years and they were hot they are hot and they're a really good company and um you know the owner i i had met before in new york and um you know there's some kind of overlap for the brands the proposed brand of heritage that i wanted to do 
I reached out to him, cold called him, and the 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 you know the guy who was kind of running the New York program kind of just reached back out. I was like, hey, you know, we kind of took a look at what you're doing. It seems pretty cool. We we want to somehow get to Chicago. Maybe this works for both of us. Um, and so they put their you know their might of a company behind what we were doing. The the idea of what we we're doing in Chicago. I mean, we we didn't have a cafe. We didn't have an open yet. But they were like, hey, if you do this, we'll come there. Here's the agreement. We'll sell you coffee. Uh, we're going to roast in New York and ship it overnight to you. Uh, you'll have the first downtown available coffee beans in Chicago. And what's crazy is that even before I opened, even before they came, I had people reach out to me like via emails like, hey, could you get in Stumptown? I need Stumptown now. Can you get it for me? Before I opened the doors, I would have like back alley deals like selling coffee before the doors were open. I remember <laughs> clearly like people were just like jonesing for the Stumptown. It was such a hot, hot brand. And, it, you know, to their credit, they came out, they flew out like four people. I'm friends with a couple of them still to this day. Like I can reach out to them and they just kind of helped me create the cafe vibe. They, they sat with my staff, my first staff, and they, they taught them, you know, four to seven days or a week, yeah, a week of like just coffee training. Me and my wife sat in and we learned a lot just in that seven days alone. Um, and we opened up with a really strong crew, a really great first uh, barista class. And these guys were awesome to work with. And they just kind of helped us get on the ground running. And, you know, from that point, with their brand behind us and with kind of the idea, it was weird because you know, I'm from New York. We were like, oh, big New York guy coming to Chicago and opening up this coffee bike shop. is such a big deal. And I was like, first of all, I'm not a big deal. Second of all, I'm from Chicago. Like, Get, I don't know what the fuck this is. Like, you know, you guys are hyping me up for nothing. Like, don't believe the hype kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, it was it was ridiculous. Like, just, the, it's so funny when people latch on to you. Like, again, you know, these, like, idea of some idea. And the people are just, like, go crazy about it. It's like, okay. I mean, I'll take it. But, like, you guys will be very disappointed. Like, I had, like, a three- to five-year plan. Maybe I'll still be around. And luckily enough, the hype was, was real. And they just kept coming. And we, um got the ground, you know, pretty quickly there. Mike, was that was that the first time Stumptown had seen someone like yourself combining bikes and coffee? And and if so, how did they react to it? And in your opinion, why aren't more people doing this? Why aren't people mashing these bikes and coffee type concepts together? I, I think that we were the first proposal that kind for Stumptown. You know, I don't know if they've seen it before, but I know they hadn't, you know, sold to a bike coffee shop. Um and they were open to it. I mean, it just made sense to them culturally. I think they were on the same path. They're from Portland. So, you know, the cycling culture out there is pretty large. And I'm sure there was a bike shop in Portland that maybe had Stumptown and an espresso machine. I think what set us apart early on was, you know, we weren't a bike shop with an espresso machine. We weren't a coffee shop with just a bike stand in the back. We were legitimately being able to thrive on both sides. So it had to be a bike shop and it had to be a coffee shop. And those things could not be reliant on each other they both had to be strong in their own way i think that was really relevant early on with the equipment we got with the training we got with the um, mechanics we got you know these i wanted it to be taken seriously on both this is an afterthought neither of these components were just like oh let's throw in like a coffee machine and uh you know we'll serve coffee to someone who comes into the bike shop this is like a legitimate cafe program so i think you know in that respect we were one of the first ones to really kind of focusing on both and make sure that both of them were as 
the best that they could be in, in their fields. Um, as far as anyone else doing, I mean, there's a lot of people now starting to do this combo bike shop, coffee shop, you know, coffee shop, plant shop, plant shop, you know, whatever shop. I mean, there's a lot of, it should make sense. Retail and service together is a way to take advantage of real estate, uh, take advantage of you know, sitting on inventory. Um, so like a lot of that, and even in COVID, like you saw a lot more when restaurants turned into grocery stores. I and mean, that's a good example of pivoting to like, hey, we have these goods. We can sell these goods that we buy for wholesale, retail-wise. People are interested in what we cook too. Um, we should just kind of do this idea of, of retail slash service and see where it takes us because it's not that much more of a, an investment. So I think that you see it now. I think a lot of people are doing it as well um, as we try, as we try to do, I think a lot of people are, are great at one thing and, you know, not the other. And that's, you know, that's their thing too. They may not be able to handle the service part of it or the bike side of it. Um, and some of them are just themed, like there could be a coffee, you know, bike shop themed coffee shop or a coffee shop themed bike, you know, which is cool. I mean, all plays its part. I'm not here to say one thing's, you know, we're revolutionizing anything. I hear to say that we're, we take what we do, we look inward, and we try to improve on it every single day. So, you know, people are doing it. It's cool. I think I think there's really cool stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah. For, for I mean, for sure. I mean, I, I can I can at least acknowledge the fact that, that early on, and I'm going to, you know, shift gears here, but, you know, early on, you know, when, when we first came across Heritage, it definitely was very revolutionary for what you guys were doing in the space that you're in. And um, there was one particular person, and I, obviously it'd, it'd be ignorant not to uh, talk about him, Jay Michael, right? So Jay played a large role in, in all of our lives and really many people's lives, uh, not only in Chicago, but throughout the United States. I mean, Mike, you ironically sent me a podcast uh, over the weekend. Um, it was an NPR podcast um, featuring Jen and Jeff uh, Martin from Pipcorn talking about the role that that Jay Michael played Um uh, in their lives. And for you particularly, you know, what role did he play? So, so for, so real quick, for those who didn't know Jay, uh, you know, Jay passed away in 2016 from stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, he was a lifestyle architect, a real estate, you know, visionary, uh, a very good friend and colleague. Uh, he's the co-founder, you know, was the co-founder of Cedar Street and Flats, uh, which is an apartment lifestyle community here in Chicago. Uh, he was the kindest, probably the most giving human being that I've personally come across ever in my life, not only my personal life, but my professional career. Um, and when he saw something that was really spectacular, he did everything in his power to make sure that that person or that thing was a part of his life. And in this case, he found you and he found heritage. How did that come to be? What role has that play and really still continues to play in your life today? Yeah, uh, Jay. Jay was a force to be reckoned with. He is a funny dude, and he is always missed. He's he's definitely an, um, you know, he's 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 based. A lot of our decisions are based on I think what Jay would have would have approved of, would have liked, and you know he never disapproved, which is cool. Um, he was always kind of do your thing. But Jay, you know, the thing I think about Jay is he was uh, again the most giving, caring person. Everyone thought that he was their best friend, which is a great character trait. You know, you show up at a 
somewhere you're like oh you know jay yeah jay's my best friend like jay you know everyone's jay's everyone's best friend somehow was- jay could get you into any dinner reservation if it was like the most packed restaurant in the city of chicago yeah jay was just like he uh he knew everybody he he again he just like showed up and was like the life of the party he was just you know like you know everyone knew jay and i know it's easy to say that to people who pass and you know it's you kind of think of them fondly, but like when he was alive, that was how people thought of Jay, you know? So it wasn't like, Oh, he passed away. And like, you know, these fond memories. It was like, no, that was Jay when he was alive. And that's something hard to do. When I walk in the room, people don't give a fuck. They're like, who's that grouchy? They definitely care if you walk so. in the room. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's, it's a lot, of, <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, but yeah, when we were, you know, my wife just reminded me after listening to that podcast, um, in 2012, actually, after we opened, got some hype, and I guess he had just, you know, was running errand down Lincoln Avenue and, and saw the storefront, and I wasn't there at the time, and um, my one of my bike managers was like, hey, this guy showed up, and, like, he was talking about buying bikes and all these bikes for his company, and, you know, talking about how he's this and that, and, you know, he just wants to connect, so they connected me with him, and Joe was like, hey, you know, I love what you're doing, kind of stuff, and... He uh, he he was on a show called Hundred Days of Summer." That last a good show good one season. Chicago, I guess, like young single people. I'm assuming good one season. <laughs> uh, not enough drama, probably. You know, the Midwest are like fuck drama. Um, so like that was not going to work. You don't see like a real highlight <laughs> in Chicago because no one cares. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, he showed up and was like, you know, I met him. He's like, hey, I'm going to film here. I was like, cool. Uh, he's like, I'm on his Bravo show. I was like, all right, cool. Like, I, you know, at that point, people were like, kind of hitting me up and like, oh, you should do this and that, and you'll be on this and that. And I was like, all right. Um, so he did. He did show up. There's a film crew. It was probably one of the you know first several uh, film crews that showed up to the to the shop, and we did a scene. He asked me to be in it, and I remember like, you know, just talking about uh, selling him bikes, and you know, part of that conversation. And I was on Bravo, and I think for a second, but. It was super cool. And we, you know, we created a friendship after that. He was, you know, texting me. Was kind of, you know, he, when Jay wanted to do something, you tell because he just kept at it. And he, just, he did it in a good way. Like, he was like, you know, he was like, hey, just checking in. Hey, we, you know. And he knew in the back of his mind that he thought bigger things. He was, he was trying to, like, get you to, like, kind of uh, come along the ride that he was going to narrate for you. So, you know, he kept prodding. Not prodding, but he kept, you know, he, and we became friends. And that... I, I hope that we were genuine. <laughs> I think that we were genuine friends because it didn't matter whether or not he was part of the company. And he did eventually, you know, uh, buy in because we, we did a, a real estate deal with uh, with one of the first flats buildings on Wilson. But that that wasn't like a driving factor of our relationship, which is super cool. It was like, hey, I think you should do this. I think there's more opportunity here. Come do this with me. I'll make it a you know no risk um, opportunity for you to grow the company that was kind of, you know before that i wasn't even thinking about it i was like i was year one year two and i was like what no i got shit to do like i can't expand and then he was like this is an offer you can't refuse you know and i was like okay i'll do it like well obviously we'll do it and it's not it was always part of the plan but it was part of the plan like seven years from after we opened that like year two year three so he he got it right. I think he he been on the right ho- racehorse. That's that's us. And um, you know, unfortunately, he did pass away. But he leaves a legacy, and we think about it every day. And you know, a lot of where we are now is because of his belief in what we could be. 
Um, and even though he's not around to see it, you know, I think that a lot of what we're going to end up being is a result of his belief in what we were. Yeah. So, so continuing on the theme of your relationship with flats, um, one of the, the interesting things about you and, and your hospitality brands is that all, I believe all, uh, minus the original heritage location, your location off Racine and Randolph and the camper on the lakefront, of course, correct us if, if we're wrong here, are located in multifamily properties, right? Yeah, we have, um, the original Lincoln Avenue location has like a small apartment building, standalone kind of thing. And then the one in Fulton Market is an office building. And actually the one on 300 Wacker, South Wacker is a, a huge office building. But everything other than that is with the flats, um, residential buildings. Kind of interesting, kind of cool. Um, we definitely play a part in creating a culture of, of flats and, you know, whether the tenants like it or not, we're there. And we'll be part of that, you know. That we're the door guy slash coffee person slash bike people, you know. So um, we try to serve a part of everyday life that I don't think a lot of residential developers have thought of, um, which kind of closes the gap on another chapter of people's lives. You know, um, it just creates kind of more of a, a, a culture in their buildings. And it's cool. It's cool to be part of. And and on your end, right? It's it's somewhat forced you to up your game on on your on the brand and the way that you interact with folks because you're now in there, you know, and they're, they're effectively their right. living room, right? Right. We're not we're not we're not shutting the doors, you know, at night. I mean, we are, but like we are there every day, and every day a hundred or so residents will see us, and if we are a disturbance to their house, believe me, we will know. I mean, this they're they're very quick to tell us when we are doing something wrong. Oftentimes. You know, it's a misunderstanding. Maybe it wasn't explained correctly during a process. And I don't think that we're out of our realms. And so it's a difficult scenario. I mean, it's definitely a, a balance to try to create the best environment for our customers and the best environment for the residential customers. Those are different things. That's that's interesting, Mike, to, to kind of play off of that. You know, Jake and I always bicker about the the lack of ingenuity of lobby spaces, specifically in multifamily. You know, we look at them as programmed with, you know, uninviting furniture and coffee stations that hardly ever get used or over the top features and amenities. And it's obvious that in order to get people in the door or at least to keep them intrigued from what we've seen from you and in, in flats uh, is to take this approach. Why, in your opinion, aren't more hospitality brands doing that and partnering with developers and apartment communities. Well, let's get back to the idea of a lobby. Like that was such an antiquated thing. I think now um, in the year 2020, even 2010, even before that lobbies were this kind of weird place. I mean, no one wanted to be in a lobby. I don't think I can think of a good lobby space where it's like, you know, my grandma's, you know, old furniture covered with, you know, some sort of plastic and then, Sitting there for what? What are we sitting here for? Like, what's the deal? Who are we waiting for? Is this for drunk people waiting for their Uber? Yeah, I think you coined the expression that a lobby is a waiting room for Uber. <laughs> right. So I promised you I would use that again. And I would credit you. It is. I think, I that's, mean, the, it, I think that's the best damn, <laughs> best damn description ever. It's so it's so dumb now. It's just so like, what's a waste of space, right? We're trying to get rid of this waste of space. Let's let us establish a place where residents want to be. I mean, let's not sit around and on 
you know, outdated couches and lamps, and, you know, a high ceiling for, for what? You know, no one's, it's so uncomfortable. Let's create a space. Let's create a community. Let's have the building actually um, kind of just have its own life. And, and like that starts in the lobby. So I, I think that taking over these spaces that are already there, you know, the intentions were valued at one point. Now they're just kind of forgotten. Let's retroactively activate them. And I think that's kind of what we've been doing because flats usually doesn't build from the ground up. They take over old buildings and they're stuck with these lobby spaces. And that was the first experiment we did at Wilson. How is this lobby space, which was like the super weirdest lobby space ever, and it should never be a cafe, is now a cafe. And it works somehow. Um, and it doesn't make sense, but it also does because people come in and out of their building every day at least twice a day to go to work yeah when they, when they go to work and we're, we're we're the doorman we say hi to you we know your dogs are we know your kids are we know your birthdays um we create a relationship with the baristas and that just has another layer of um family you know as a as a as a life of a building yeah no i was gonna say you know jake and i always talk about how multifamily properties that they try so hard to force a sense of community. But when you start to build a culture, not only within the building, but through partners like yourselves, like it adds an extra layer of community. And you mentioned like the barista now becomes another familiar face. They might not live in the building, but it's someone else you can relate to and and speak to. Uh, It's very special. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, when a barista goes on leave or can't work anymore, it's like a loss, you know, residents get really upset. I mean, they, they want their familiarity. They want their barista. So it, it becomes routine. It, again, even if you don't buy coffee every day or you never buy coffee at all, we have a lot of people who just go down the street and buy Starbucks, which to me is, I, I don't get, but like, you know, maybe they need to get out of the building, but still the barista is always going to be a part of your life. You see them. So we've we talked a lot about heritage. Um, one of the the really interesting and admirable things about you is like you got a good thing going, but you're you're constantly innovating and coming up with new brands and new ideas. Um, Andrew had an opportunity to partner with you on on Larry's about six to seven years ago, and then recently Noel Studio on Froth and Bunker. Uh, but those those are the big you know departures from the core heritage brand. How's it been? Um, you know, going away from, from what you know and trying something new and what keeps you, what keeps you doing that? So, you know, I always say that, uh, entrepreneurship is my creative outlet. Um, I just can't sit still. I mean, you know, you have, I have five projects right now that are open, but like I have a hundred that are backed up in my brain that ready to be released. It's just kind of one of those things where, um, if I'm not doing something or developing something, I'll get myself in trouble. It's, it's an addiction. It's, uh, it's what I enjoy doing. I like pushing the boundaries. I'd like more of that. I'd like to have more creativity. I think that comes with deeper pockets. So, you know, I think that, you know, once I establish myself a little bit more, I'm able to get more creative and kind of more outside the lines. Um, but you know, Larry's and all these other concepts are kind of just phases of my life. You can, you know, if you look back and you kind of overlay the concepts to where I am in my life, it's telling, it's a chapter. Uh, you know, for layers, I wanted a, a, for me, I just want, I was, I was in coffee, I was, I was in bikes, and I wanted a spot where I could just go after work and like sit and, and, and just like digest, um, 
have my own space. Uh, and I just want to thought a neighborhood bar would be great. I thought it'd be like a perfect spot to like just unwind. But I also like, I love beer. I drink it a lot, but it just makes you feel like heavy. So I thought cocktails and the best cocktails were always downtown. The best cocktails you had to go, you know, see a see a space that was super hip and cool. And I love I love going there, and they're great experiences. But also, like, why can't we just have a really good cocktail in the neighborhood bar? Like, why can't it be accessible? Why can't our bartenders be as knowledgeable or more knowledgeable than these swanky ass you know spots downtown? We can do it. And these bartenders don't have to pretend to like play this like role of swank. You know, they can just like show up at a bar. And have regulars that enjoy cocktails that are delicious. Um, so that was kind of like a foundational thought about layers is like, how can you make a neighborhood bar, not only just a neighborhood bar, but a pocket bar, a pocket bar inside the middle floor plan of a building so there's no street presence? Well, that's, you know, that seems stupid for anybody else. For me, I was like, yeah, you know, we've done it before with cafes, this kind of thing. We can do it. I mean, let's, we don't, we aren't setting ourselves up for these wild expectations. Let's have a growth. Let's have like a 10-year period of growth. Let's not think like we're, you know, flash in the pan kind of like hot moment right now. Um, so that was always the idea. Is like, I still want to go. I want a neighborhood bar. I want to show up and like either be left to myself or enjoy company or it doesn't matter. But we have all those options and it's just as accessible and just as good as any bar in Chicago. So I think we're on this like really, really nice trajectory of like, becoming we are we are known in the industry we're known in the neighborhood and you know we're in a, we're, i think we're in one of the best neighborhoods in chicago still being developed i mean you have the aragon you have the green mill you got the rib you got double door opening and we're like in the center of that like we're right there so that we can be a spot where we can get a cocktail and low-key and then go to your destination or you can come after the show or pre-show and it's like I mean, these pre-shows right now are insane. And I can only imagine when even it gets developed even more, how crazy they'll be. And we have enough room as a pocket bar. We have like this really cool, small little bar. But like we are up against a lobby that can sit 120 people, 130 people, not to mention our 8,000 square foot backyard. So it's a really unique, and that's just Larry's. Like I'm going on a tangent here. I'm describing Larry's. I just think it's a great bar. It's one of my favorite bars of I've ever been to. I mean, it might be biased, but um, it's a really easy bar to get into. And then, you know, stuff like Froth, which we opened up last year during the pandemic, was an evolution of, you know, here we have the coffee program. Larry's is, I mean, a Heritage is great, standard, like awesome coffee, always, always good coffee. Um, and it has the standard stuff on the menu. You know, we have a seasonal, but like, it's just a really good cup of coffee. And then we opened Larry's Cocktail Bar, which is super great, experimental. I want to kind of combine the two for froth and say, hey, let's get really weird with coffee. Let's get experimental. Let's do a cocktail approach to coffee. And so with froth, you know, we we opened up in the pandemic, so it wasn't like much we could do there as far as volume, as far as experimenting. Uh, we really need just to like generate revenue. So it was, I think it's still pretty conservative of what the concept will be eventually, but that is our opportunity to like as a coffee company to really play a part in kind of trying everything let's let's throw against the wall let's be weird let's let's be experimental things may fail which is totally cool with me but um you know i think there's an, another room to play another playground to play in 
And that's kind of the approach. Let's get really good food. Let's get kind of weird food. Let's get not weird, but like really upscale for a cafe. Uh, we have a great executive chef that's kind of throwing out really interesting stuff on the menu. So froth is that thing where it's, again, an evolution of where I am as a person and where the company is. <clears throat> and Bunker, which we haven't opened yet uh, due to delays by the city of Chicago, which I won't go into. But they, it will be a bar. I won't go into it because it gets me very upset. Um, but it'll be a bar for the neighborhood. It'll be, you know, I wouldn't say Larry's esque. It'll, but it, it is in the center of a building layout. So like, there's no street presence. Kind of cool. We have a huge patio, huge patio, and then we have uh, a great kitchen. There's a lot of food at the bar, and we are going to have, you know, good, good wine list, good beer list, and you know, a, a basic good cocktail menu. So these are kind of the evolution of like where I am as a person, what we want to do. Um, and I think when that comes out, it's going to be again a neighborhood bar where people can gather and socialize and like really get to know each other, which is super fun. It's not going to be like the sports bar in the neighborhood because right down the street from the Ed Center. This will be a truly for the neighbors, you know if you know, kind of spot. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's, we're, we're really excited to I'm excited. I mean, let's get this going. Does anyone know anyone downtown? <laughs> yeah, it's Chicago. So someone, someone listening knows someone. Um, so on, on that, that front here, thinking about, thinking about multifamily, I mean, you've been able to do some, as you've, you've talked about, you've been able to do some pretty rad stuff in spaces that, you know, in some ways they're purpose built for what you're doing in other ways you've had to adapt and, and get creative, which is, which is part of what you're really good at. Um, you know, presenting advice and, and thinking about our listeners here, what what advice would you give a group that's looking to combine multifamily and FMB concepts that adding another layer are open to the public? Well, think about, I think it's hard to wrap around like the ROI and something like that. Food and beverage is not an easy game to be in. Um, when you're a residential developer, you probably see XYZ, you know, there's one plus two equals three kind of thing. And you see it on paper. This is a different game. This is 4D chess. You know, we're talking about where are we seeing gains because we have hospitality in the building. And you can't recognize that on paper. You know, you're going to create culture. You're creating another revenue stream. Um, you're creating desire to be there from another um, commercial property tenant. So, like, and, and if you're asking for less than square footage on the property that you have for F&B concept inside your property, you're asking one dollar more square foot above you. You're you're making money. I mean, even if the business is losing money, you're making money because you're that more desirable, and your building will fill up faster. And there's all sorts of like just side benefits that aren't equatable. You can't you can't see them on paper. You just you know because we've done it. I know because we've done it with flats that our value to it is not necessarily our F and B, which which makes money. But it is the idea that they are able to harness that idea and the food and beverage concept and play along with the entire flats concept. So um, it, it's it's thinking outside the box. I mean, again, it's hard for real estate developers. Most of them, unlike flats, are kind of, again, one plus two plus three. Flats has given me the liberty and trusted me to be able to develop something. And I think they've seen the you know the the concept the idea of 
food and beverage in their already existing lifestyle brand to be a benefit. You know, you do a cost benefit analysis and you see that some of these buildings don't fill up as fast because we're not there. Some of these, you know, tenants want something else. Um, and, and as we develop it more and more over the next, you know, 10 years, we will be able to look at other revenue streams that will incorporate. I mean, we're looking at meal plans, we're looking at subscription base, we're looking at, you know, models to fit in where we think there's a gap for residents. So if you're creative, if you're willing, you know, spend money to, to create an environment, if you're willing to think outside of this traditional idea of what a residential developer is, you have an idea that you know, could work. I mean, again, you just have to think outside of the numbers. Mike, to that point, you know, so much of what I think makes Heritage unique, not only the the concept of bikes and coffee, but over the years, you guys have made considerable effort to partner with some of the best companies, creatives, producers, products, shops, you know, in this field or, you know, throughout the city. And to name a few, Paul Octavius, Rightway Signs, Brooks Saddle, Post Golden, Field Creatives, which is your wife's company. Why is this so important to the heritage brand or just brand in general? I think it's natural. I think it's, you know, I, 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 again, I know my shortfalls. I know I want to surround myself with the best around me. I think New York, when I was there, did that to me. It was like, I thought I was good at stuff. And you're around people who are the worst in your field and they're amazing at it around you in New York. It's like, yeah, you know that there's so much better out there. So every time I see somebody who's relevant to what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to kind of, you know, I'm a sponge. I want to know what they're doing. I want them to be part of what I'm doing because I feed off of them as much as they feed off of us. I get ideas from everyone else as much as they will from us. I mean, it's only natural, I think, to, you can only evolve by learning. You can only evolve by understanding more and trying to get a better idea of what's going on. So if surrounding myself with the best in their industry is a way for me to evolve, then I'm going to do that. I'm going to try to seek out the best people who are willing to be friends. And I'm not even asking for work advice or being, you know, collaborating. I just want to be around them to understand what their perspective is, what their angle is and what their approach is. That way I can say, Hey, that approach actually works really well for what I'm doing. Uh, I'm just talking in broad strokes now because it reaches so many angles, but like, it happens in every part of what we're doing. I mean, I just want to get to know people. I'm, I think I'm a friendly guy, and I just think that people are really interesting, and that everyone has a different story to tell. And I want to, I want to, you know, understand that story. And it's only a way for me to develop. And it, you know, I don't know. It's just there's so much to learn. There's so much to learn. There's so many cool people out there. I wish I could be part of more collaborations. So, Mike, we got we got time for one more here. Uh, we talked a lot about about what you've done and, and all the ex- uh, success that you've achieved. What's next? What's next for you? Give give everyone here a preview of of those one hundred plus ideas in the backlog of your brain. Uh, everything from uh, rooftop ice rinks to uh, you know San Diego beach cruisers uh, and everything in between. I mean, there's. Right now, there's so much going on. We're, you know, finalizing a, a really partnership with Flats that'll, as they go national, we tend to go with them. And with that, not only is Heritage going, but also these one-off kind of ideas that I have sitting around in my small little brain, they'll come on paper and we'll try to, you know, take a crack at them and see what works. I mean, 
dude, you don't want to know the far-fetched shit that I have in my mind that I will get laughed at so much, but maybe one of them slips through the goalie and I can get, you know, I can get something kind of weird up there and, and we'll see what happens, but it's going to be fun. The next, I think, five to ten years is going to be insanely hard, insanely fun and fulfilling. And, um, you know, again, as a company, we don't really celebrate a lot of wins. We just kind of put our heads down and work. So you may not see us in the paper. We may not be the most glamorous and, you know, glitz company and coolest hospitality group, but we're going to get shit done. We're going to keep going and we're going to kind of surround ourselves with the best people we can. And, you know, you'll see us. We'll be part of your life somehow. You may not know it, but we'll be there. It's awesome, man. Well, thanks again. Obviously, you know, you're, you're a hospitality visionary and maker and something that we love to not only have as a friend, but someone to have in our world. And we thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Peace. Peace. Thanks again for listening to the No Contest Podcast. For more information, make sure to follow us on social media or check us out at nowalls.studio.